Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I was on a lot of physical pain and that had me not able to sleep. And so I did stay up a lot at night and would think about ending my life because I just felt really alone and like nobody really understood me or saw me. And my family was there for me again. Like, yeah, it was kind of probably annoying that I was sick a lot. They had their own stuff going on. I had friends. I was invited to the parties. I was probably like considered a cool kid. I went to an all girls Catholic school. So again, there was like, it wasn't the same clicks (laughs) at schools, but that, but I had all that, but I just really, I don't know. I just really felt like, what are we doing? And this like really trying to figure out how to fit in and stand out at the same time. Hey there, it's Light Watkins. Welcome back to the Light Watkins Show. This is your first time here. You are in for a treat. I interview ordinary people like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith, often in the direction of their path, their purpose, or their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact the lives of many other people who have heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've benefited from their work. My guest today is a self-described joyologist named Trisha Huffman. Trisha grew up in the Midwest of the United States. At 18 years old, she was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. And then at 19, she read an Eleanor Roosevelt quote that changed her life. The quote said, the only person who can make you inferior is yourself. Trisha really took that quote to heart. She began pursuing her dream career, which was in music production. She became a sound engineer for Dolly Parton and a bunch of other huge musicians. Then a few years later, her father suddenly died and she was reminded that tomorrow is never promised. And she began questioning whether her true calling was indeed as a sound engineer or was it something else? And after concluding that it was something else, Trisha quit her job and she slowly began to craft and create this new job for herself, which she called a joyologist. A joyologist is someone who helps people, musicians, normal people, whoever, find the joy in their life through taking better care of themselves mentally, physically, and spiritually. And this became a thing. And Trisha now coaches other people who want to find more joy in their life. And about 12 years ago, during this transitional phase, Trisha started questioning why we say the word should and how the context of using should often involves some degree of shaming ourselves for not doing something that either we feel like we should be doing or that society tells us that we should be doing. And so her should obsession never went away. 
I mean, years and years, she's contemplating this word. She continues thinking about it deeper and deeper. And that exploration culminated in a book that she wrote, which is called F the Shoulds. You can imagine what F stands for. And this is a thesis on why we as a society should seriously consider abandoning the word should. So Trisha and I talk about that in this interview. Of course, we do a deep dive into her backstory to give it all context. And I even challenged her a little bit on why should deserves to be dropped because I needed to hear some really hard examples of using the word and and how we could reframe our use of that word. But overall, it was a very enlightening and inspiring conversation that I think you're going to really enjoy. And after hearing it, you might be more reluctant to use the S word as well. So without further ado, let us get to my conversation with our resident joyologist, Miss Tricia Huffman. Trisha, thank you so much for coming on to my podcast. Super excited about going deeper into your story. Funny enough, we had a podcast yesterday where I was on your podcast. (laughs) So we got a chance to connect before and now the tables have turned and I get to ask you questions. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it'll be fun how how that worked out. We got we got really into your story yesterday for my podcast. Now it's my turn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And you inspired something when we talked yesterday, you were asking me about my high school years. So I wanna mm-hmm. reciprocate <laughs> and ask you. You grew up in Ohio, right? Yeah, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Yeah. So Catholic schools, all girls, high school. And your parents were together as you guys were growing up. So talk a little bit about the Midwestern mentality that you grew up with. Before we get into like what you end up doing as an adult, I want to, if possible, hone in on to where that came from. If there were any indications from a, as a young person, like were there any ideologies? I know your mom was a nurse. Was your dad like, you should work for yourself or you should be creative? Or was there anything, any philosophies that you grew up with hearing your parents echo? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's mid, if it was Midwestern mentality or what. There was definitely like, I felt like this, like the idea of like the fitting in with their, like keeping up with, you know, like I grew up really like looking back pretty what, like we lived in a good sized house. We had a pool. We had a big yard. I went to mm-hmm. yeah private Catholic. I mean, I went to Catholic schools because that was my mom was raised Catholic and she went to Catholic schools. And so all the cousins did. But like, realistically, we had everything. You know, it's not like I was asking for everything, but we had so much. But it really, I felt like we were poor. Like, I felt like constantly not enough. You know, like there's not enough. No, no, no. Like just such a focus on money, which is interesting because like I said, I'm like, wait, I had like Nike shoes. I had the things. But why did it just feel like not enough? My mom was a nurse. My dad, when I was growing up, he worked for like the major bank change. But I think he was like the head of maintenance, but he wasn't like cleaning man, but you know, like would go around to different branches to be like fixing things or whatever. And he did that for a good amount of time and it was a solid job. And then he wanted to branch out and do something on his own. So we got into something where it was like, you had your own tool company, like you sold tools or something. It's like you, it was sort of like you were 
working independently as an entrepreneur, but not because it was like, this is a company where it's like, here, work for yourself and buy these tools from us and then go around and sell them to other people or something. And it didn't work out. <laughs> and then he bought like a, a neon sign company remember the big arrow signs, you know, that there lots of, they'd be at stores or people could even give them a birthday party and customize. Like he later like bought like that to again, be like working for himself. And like, he got by. And and there was a long time of him being unemployed too. So my mom, especially as we were older, was the main provider. But yeah, my dad definitely, I feel like had this spirit of sort of, hey, why not try things? And my mom very much like, nope, we got to keep making money, stay on this path. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. And there was conflict. Were you into music back in those days as a young person? Yeah. So I always loved music. And you know, that might have been something from my dad. I remember him taking us to concerts as a kid. Like I went to Tina Turner as like maybe eight years old, just because like he like he would want to go to concerts and he needed somebody to go with. <laughs> so I was like, I went to lots of concerts as a kid, uh, like just going with my dad or then like the whole family and stuff. So that must be, and I remember we always had music playing, like had a stereo, other things. So I really got into music and that was something I always connected with. And then, and then live music did become a thing to me and ended up that was my first career was becoming a live sound engineer. And I really loved music so much that when I was a teenager and going to concerts, I didn't care what the music was. I just like, oh, you're going to a concert? Can I come? And I really just was there and like paying attention to the music and not like dancing and having fun, but like really just like listening. Talk about the shower experience you had when you were 15. Where did that come from? And how did it lead you to start leaning into your intuition? My parents, they had a lot of differences and they didn't really get along. I had, you know, wished they separated when I was in about fourth grade. And I honestly like had wished they had continued with that and gotten divorced. They were not happy. Again, being raised Catholic and going to all Catholic schools. I just realized early on, like I was very questioning of what is, and these are the rules and this is what you believe. And this is, you know, cause it says it in this Bible. So that's the truth. Like I remember even from a young age, like always questioning that just sort of like seeing a lot and being like, this doesn't really make sense. Or like, why am I supposed to listen to my parents when they're obviously not happy? You know, like I remember from an early age being like, what are we doing here? <laughs> especially feeling that in the teenage years. And I also had a lot of undiagnosed pain. My mom did take me to all sorts of doctors. Later, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia when I think that they first decided to give that a word or something. But so I was on a lot of physical pain. And that had me not able to sleep. And so I did stay up a lot at night and would think about ending my life because I just felt really alone. And like nobody really understood me or saw me. And my family was there for me again. Like, yeah, it was kind of probably annoying that I was sick a lot. They had their own stuff going on. I had friends. I was invited to the parties. I was probably like considered a cool kid. I went to an all girls Catholic school. So again, there was like, it wasn't the same clicks <laughs> at schools, but that, but I had all that. But I just really, I don't know. I just really felt like this, like, what are we doing? And this, like, really trying to figure out how to fit in and stand out at the same time. And so I really just had this moment and it was because I had, I was going to be forced to sit and eat a meal with my parents and my grandmother. That's what caused the meltdown. 
I had really been isolating myself that like came home from school, go to my room. Like I really just like lived in my room at that point. If I wasn't out with my friends that, so what caused this shower moment meltdown that was pivotal for my life was that I was going to have to go eat dinner at a table with my parents and my grandmother. Um, And so I just was like, I had this moment that I was like, if you think about ending your life all the time, it's either like take that choice or what if there's another way? And again, what's funny, you were saying this a lot in my podcast yesterday, but like looking back, same, I'm like, I didn't have the language, but like now looking back, it's like realizing I couldn't do anything about the physical pain that was happening in my body, but I could do something about the emotional pain that I was causing myself. And I think a lot of us still live in and that I still have to overcome every day, which is like really putting so much attention on like, what does everybody else think about me? What should I be saying? What should I be doing? What should I wear? Is it cool if I do this or not this? Really, like we're putting so much weight all the time in these tiny decisions that's reflected more on what is everybody else going to think about me? And so it was just like, all right, if you really think about ending your life all the time, what if you tried life a different way? And what if it was just that, paying more attention to what I thought, what my opinion was, what felt right to me, then what should I be doing? (laughs) What is the cool thing to do? Like, what's that? And so I really started to live my life that way. And But yeah, I had, it was like, I I really like kind of had a psychotic break, to be honest, where I was like drawing on the mirror with red lipstick. Okay, I was making this choice. I made the choice to live. I made the choice. This is it. I'm done thinking about like, it was sort of like, I really never thought about ending my life ever again after that moment. It was like, I chose to live. And so that I ended up turning the shower on as hot as it could go. I don't know. Like, again, nothing makes sense, but that's just like what happened. And it was like, I was just in that shower, like burning red skin, sobbing for a really long time. And when I came out, it was just sort of like, okay, this is your life now. You're choosing it. And I still live that way. And it's still a moment to moment choice. It's not as if that shower water never made me care ever again about anybody else was thinking. But it really is this constant coming back to whoa, what's going on here? Like, are you judging yourself? Are you comparing yourself? You're really like afraid to wear that outfit outside right now because you're afraid people are going to judge you for it. Like, what do you think? So this constant coming back to myself. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass If you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY, again, thehappinessinsiders.com, enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass 
which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. There's a lot of awareness now around anxious thoughts and, you know, mental health stuff. And how are you able at 15 years old to discern between your anxiety and your intuition, that intuitive voice? How did you know this is my intuition, not that? Yeah. And I mean, I definitely didn't know it wasn't like, oh, this is anxiety and this is intuition. I mean, I think looking back, I still wouldn't even be able to identify it as those things. It was more of just like my opinion. Hey, you have an opinion. This is your life. Again, it was mostly these small things like, do I raise my hand or not? What does that mean about me? Was it good to be smart or not? So these tiny moments of questioning myself. And so allowing that questioning instead of what is everybody else going to think about me? You're like, well, what do you want? Do you actually like really want to raise your hand and say something or no? Like, so... I don't know how I had that awareness and I didn't wasn't able to name anything. It was just trying to ask myself if nobody else cared, if nobody else mattered, what would you be doing? If nobody was watching, that it just realized how much I was unconsciously defaulting to everyone else. Do you remember where you you first saw that question? Did you read it in a book? Did you hear somebody say it in a movie? Like if no one was watching you, what would you be doing? Or would you just kind of cognize that on your own? So that was cognized on my own. And like I said, it wasn't the language I'm giving it now. Maybe wasn't that. It was just sort of like, you're really thinking about ending your life. Like, why not just, you know, try not caring so much about these other about other people. Reading those sorts of quotes and stuff, though, would have probably came in like college. You know, I said like the one thing I did for my parents is what I went to get a college degree, but I was very interested in music, like I said, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I really wanted to be part of live music, but I didn't know what that was. And so I ended up at Columbia College, Chicago, and like music business was the program I found. But while I was there, I discovered and and I wasn't a music pro- program that was even music business, but it was a lot of like guys that were like, well, you don't even know anything about music. And I didn't. I didn't know anything about engineering music. I just know I liked it. <laughs> So I really like didn't know much. And so I really felt this lot of like, what are you even doing? You don't know what you're talking about, whatever, like really felt like again, this judgment. And we just had to be like, right, but I'm interested. Okay. So this is why I'm doing like reminding myself again, why I'm doing this. But during that time, I discovered this quote from Eleanor Roosevelt. That's still my favorite to the fact that both of my daughters have the middle name Rose to represent this quote from Eleanor Roosevelt, which is no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And that was such a game changer to me that when I discovered it back then, because I was really being met with a lot of external judgment, not just this fear of being judged of like, you don't know what you're doing. What are you doing here, girl? Like, blah, 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 this. And then that later took into, I did find like, oh, there's a sound program. And I started working at House of Blues Chicago, selling shirts because they had concerts upstairs, got to know the production people and then was like, hey, I think that's what I want to do. And they're like, oh, come hang out. I created my own free internship for I was showing up full time for three months because that's what I wanted to do. And I knew nothing. And I was in the way that people like took me in, but also was judged constantly by people. And I just had to keep reminding myself, 
no one can make me feel inferior without my consent. And it wasn't even, I know what I'm doing because I didn't, but it was just like, why am I here? Because I'm drawn to this because I want to. So even that they can't make me feel like I don't belong because this is what I want. And so I'm going to keep showing up and learning and proving it to myself. So I think like those early college years is where I did like that quote was discovered. And I think it was like lots of others quotes. So like the, the, the thing that I sort of referenced before, I really started to get into like, it's amazing how one sentence that someone else has said can really change your life. Next thing you know, you're on the Today Show, you're on Letterman, you're working in your dream Behind profession. the scenes, yeah. <laughs> Behind the scenes, yeah. Not as a, yeah. But yeah, so I, I did. I committed to, I wanted to do live sound. I didn't even know what it was called. I got a job working at the company store selling t-shirts because they had concerts. I said, hey, I want to do that. They said, come hang out. I then quit another job that I had so I could be there from like load in time because I was just getting there for sound check and I wanted to see it all. I worked for three months before they finally paid me on New Year's Eve to be another stagehand because they needed someone like, and I really just kept showing up and it was a lot of hard work and a lot of people again being like, what are you doing? Because there were not many young girls. And yeah, I got ended up getting hired by a sound company of San Diego. Brian Wilson came through on a tour and his sound engineer like was so rattled. He didn't have his regular people there. And he was impressed by me and was like, if you ever want a job, let me know. I was about to graduate college. Hey, and they just gave me a job. I ended up touring like right away. And yeah, like the first shows I was working with Mary Chapin Carpenter, who was already a Grammy award winning artist. <laughs> I was like, okay, you're going to be at the Today Show and Letterman this week. And, you know, staying at like, I got like car service and like staying at these fancy hotels. And I was like 23. <laughs> And yeah, like I made it happen. And it was this constantly like living by that. No one can make me feel and feel inferior without my consent. But it didn't. But also it's like constantly being open to learning and doing better and not like I know better than you. But just like, right. I can't let their judgments affect how I feel about myself and what it is that I feel like I am called to do. Do you have any stories of any screw-ups from the early days that make you cringe still when you think about them when you were working in sound? There's many. I mean, I think for sure, and it's a story that I reference in the book, that I got like the biggest opportunity of my life. I got hired to work for Dolly Parton and like even got flown to Nashville for the afternoon for her to uh, meet me at her studio so that she could just talk to me to see if she felt comfortable, I guess, or confident with me being controlling her sound. Because I was the monitor engineer. So I controlled what everybody on stage heard. So every single person on stage has their own mix that allows them to perform. So if they can't hear themselves well, or the background singers, the kick drum, whatever it is, then they're not performing well. So it's super high pressure job. So I'm mixing from anywhere from one to like 14 people at the same time, a different mix for each person. <laughs> it's insane. Um, <laughs> I'm now even like, what was, how did I do that? So I was, I got high, I was 25 and they asked me to tour with Dolly Parton. And I was like, what? So nervous. Yeah. I got flown to Nashville just for the afternoon to like have a conversation with her and then like back to the airport. And I got chosen, but I, was so nervous and so scared that I really screwed that tour up. 
it was interesting because it was like by them hiring me, it meant, oh, this, she knows what she's doing. Trish is a great sound engineer. She can handle this. And I was, but I also like being hired to work for someone that big, that young, then I just like, I doubted myself so much. I went along with things that didn't make sense or were right because I was afraid to speak up. It got real messy. <laughs> and I finally had to be like, well, I'm so afraid to mess this up that I, I was just frozen in fear. And that by me, like actually acknowledging that, and like being like, hey, and I even did, I like said to everybody, I know that I have not been doing the best job in these first couple of weeks. And I, you know, like there's a lot of things that need to change. And so like I wasn't speaking up things that weren't right. And but by me bringing attention to what I was so afraid of and my self doubts, and I was able to move through those and change things and finally like own up to, I wasn't handling this right because I was so afraid of messing up, but I wasn't trusting myself. It's just such an interesting thing. So for me, I realized that it feels like it's easier to ignore our fears and like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm scared. It's fine. It's fine. But like they hired me for a reason. Like that sort of thing was helpful, but I needed to even look deeper at the fears and that when I can look at my fears and then question them and just see like, yeah, that's a valid fear. You're working for an icon. It's a valid fear. And so what are you going to do to like support yourself through it? Instead of like, I was just trying to ignore the fears and it made it worse that I was just like frozen and kept messing up because I didn't want to face how I felt. What does it take to be a really good sound engineer? <laughs> like, is there a natural ability or skill that's you can, you can see if someone has it or not, or things that you have to learn on that job? I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of like technical parts of like moving pieces in the gear that you're using. For me, for being a monitor engineer and taking care of that many artists at once, it's interesting because again, there are very few females, but I realized it was like, it's a very motherly position because I had to like really check in with people and be present with them. How are you doing? Are you okay? And I also had to learn that sometimes people... So one of the issues on that tour, it wasn't all my fault, is that people didn't come to me to say like that they didn't like their mix. So they would just like tell you know someone higher up, like Trisha's not doing a good job instead of saying, I can't really hear well. So it's like they making their job hard. Like it's... And that, that will happen. Like people be unhappy with their guitar tech. He's not tuning the guitar tech right. But instead of actually telling the person that does it, tell like the higher up that you got to fire that person. They're not good. Like, but not just saying, Oh, you're not doing it right. So the ability to really read people and to be like, are you sure? And like giving them that it's a lot of presence and attention and being able to manage many things at once. Yeah. I imagine there's also uh, the reason why people do that is they want to avoid conflict, direct conflict with you. They don't know you that well. They don't know if you're going to take it personally. So yeah. So they tell the the intermediary. So I, another skill would be not personalizing things when you get that feedback. Yeah, totally. And that's too like when I was so frozen in that fear, I was so afraid of getting bad feedback that I wasn't really checking in with people. It was sort of like I bet that I bet this I bet this doesn't sound very good for them, but I was afraid of getting that feedback. So I wasn't really checking in with them how I normally would. It was like it was such a big gig that it made me have so much pressure on myself. And I stopped doing all of the things that had made me be good at my job. Yeah. The classic overthinking, yeah. making you make mistakes. 
But if okay, I had so like now- checked in with them, that it probably would have been gotten fixed earlier. But I was like, I can't face the fact that it might not be good enough. <laughs> so I'm just going to keep but, making a hole for myself. <laughs> but you're professional. You got good at it. Did you see this as being something you were going to do for, you know, indefinitely when you were in your mid 20s? Yeah. Well, it's so interesting. I don't know if I ever thought about it as forever because I also had always dreamed to be a mom. And that's obviously not a lifestyle. I mean, people do, especially if you're an artist, you can tour and be a mom and you bring your kids on tour and nannies. But like being part of the crew, yeah, it doesn't make so much sense to be a mom and leave your kids for months at a time because it was like my entire life was dedicated to, you know, whoever I was working with. So I don't feel like I ever just saw it, but I was. It was the only thing I wanted to do and I hadn't seen past it. And that tour was a big shakeup for me too. Like once I ended up recovering, I did actually end up quitting the tour. There was a bunch of other reasons and drama that was happening behind the scenes also. But I sort of like got myself through it and then also was like, this isn't worth it. Because there also was a big part of it too, that I had thought that once I get on a big tour, that means I've made it. And so Mm -hmm. that's the goal, right? You want to be on the biggest tours that are playing the biggest venues because that means that you've made it as the sound engineer. And I realized I didn't like it. I rather being with the smaller family-like tours where everybody felt like family, that there's a lot of drama and stuff in these big, big tours and people trying to be the person's person and stuff like that. So that was actually a huge thing for me. Like, oh, I don't want... like This idea of success, I think, right? It's like, what success looked like to me was getting the biggest gig and the biggest name. But it actually wasn't a great environment for me. Not saying all big tours are like that and that, but it wasn't Dolly and her bands. It wasn't Dolly's stuff, but there was just like the drama of that. But yeah, so it really had me reevaluating again. Like, yeah, what am I craving if I don't want to be on the biggest tours? If I realized, no, I'd rather be on the tours where people feel like family. And then I did tour for several years after that, was able to get on tours that felt like that was still like, I ended up touring with Natalie Cole for a while, another icon. And that was like, okay, this is a smaller like family thing. And there was a part of me that knew I was ready for something different, but I didn't know what that was. What was your takeaway from working with those big artists? Like when you got to see behind the veil of their lifestyle, did you have any insights or epiphanies about what it means to be super successful or what it doesn't mean to be super successful? Yeah, it was really eye opening. And like, of course, the fact of, huh, these are still humans. And they feel like they like you think like you're like, I was living my biggest dream that I worked so hard to make happen as the sound engineer touring the world. These people were really living their biggest dreams. It was their own music, fans, no private jets, could buy the same shoes over and over and forget about it. And it was no big deal. And they even seeing people that had like supportive loved ones and relationships. So not even seeing like, of course, there's people with toxic families and relationships too. But I was seeing really good stuff and like, wow, their lives are really hard and they're actually unhappy a lot. Like you think once you have it all, everything's good. And it actually looked more stressful, (laughs) harder, a lot more going on. And they still had the doubts, fears, judgment, comparisons, so many requests coming at them constantly, not being good at boundaries, I would witness and think I didn't know what the term boundaries back then. But now looking back, like looking at it. So also just seeing like that, wow. And that was something back at House of Blue Chicago, that I wasn't able to see in that level success. But we would have such a variety of artists come through. And it's so different. So it'd be like, 
you know, here is a Wu-Tang clan. And then tomorrow is the, and then the morning it's the Sunday gospel church. And now the doors are coming for a five day stay with Pearl Jam opening. And then it's insane clown pop. Like every type of act in the world was coming through there. Like in one week at the time I worked there, it was really hot and seeing that all these different types of people and all the lovers of success. And like, wow, it was just interesting to notice how they were and just how they even like seemed if they seemed happy or not. And like, that it didn't really have anything to do with their level of fame and success. Working in that industry really showed me like the humanness that we all struggle with. And that once you get everything, that doesn't mean everything's easy peasy. So Mm. I had had that realization, but I had, it was just like information. Oh, interesting. Wow. Cool. Well, I'm loving my life. (laughs) And what happened then, my, my father passed away suddenly, and it shook me up more than I would ever expect anything to. You tell the story of the day you got that call and, and, and how it all went down. I was about to go on tour to start for like a, basically like a year and a half long tour. And it was starting in Australia and I'd never been to Australia. So I was super excited. I was supposed to leave on a red eye that night. And I like, okay, I got myself packed. I'm going to go to yoga class and I'm going to do this. I had to stop at the bank to get money to bring for the tour out. They were depositing to my money to give to the like tour manager in Australia. Anyway, I had like my stuff to do. I went to yoga and I got out of class and there was messages from my sister and she had called to say that our dad had been found dead in his car. And I definitely went into complete shock because I also was like, well, I have to go to the bank to get the money out for the tour. So I'm playing like was like driving, like still going to the bank, calling the manager of the artist I was working Mm -hmm. for to like, my dad's dead, but like, I think I'm going to still go on tour. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, it was like such a shock. I definitely went into like, just like business mode. I did fly home for the funeral, but I did still go on that tour. I just didn't know what else to do. And also like, I think that is what most people like, yeah, you just go back to work. My work just happened to be that I was going to a different country, but it just changed my life in so many ways. And one way is that I really had never let myself really show emotion I think from that moment when I was 15 too, I had turned really into like, I'm strong, I'm independent, I don't need anybody was also part of that, like choosing life that was in there. And so because of that, I realized I had a really hard time letting myself cry at my dad's funeral. Even I had a hard time, like letting people see me feel things. I'm not getting emotional right now talking about it. And and that was like really like a big moment there that like, I felt like I needed to cry. It wouldn't come out. Everybody else left. And I still was just like, I need to cry. Like, I was like having a conversation with my head, like your dad died, you're allowed to cry. But like fighting, like knowing that it had to come out. And I finally let it come out. And it was like the most disgusting animal sound crying. But that set off something in me too, that I was like, I'm not no longer bottling up my emotions or trying to hold them back or not allowing myself to feel things and see that. So I stuck with that too. Luckily, I had gigantic sunglasses at the time because then I went on tour and like the entire flight there, I was probably crying, got there, was so happy to see this like tour family would be during the shows on the side of the stage doing sound, sobbing, 
Like it was just like, I don't know. And Lord sort of just telling myself, feel like motion is present. Cause it would be like, why am I crying? This doesn't make sense. You know, like I'm like, I'm fine. And just sort of like allowing myself since that moment to like, just sort of be like, okay, you're feeling something like, just let it go. So it went on for like a couple of weeks. And I finally was like, all right, I can't do this anymore. I also was still on tour traveling around the world and I was a mess, but I also sort of had a, this new lease on life and I would see why does everybody else look miserable? Like it was interesting to me to notice that wherever I was walking past people on the streets, it seemed like more people were unhappy than happy. And this is also before like really we had iPhones. So it wasn't like the distraction of that, just that. And I just wanted to shake people and be like, you could die tomorrow. Like you really could. And we say that all the time. You can get hit by a bus tomorrow. But my dad's death was what they think happened is that he slipped on some ice and hit his head and then passed out and died of hypothermia. So it was Mm. like, you really don't know. He was 58. He was healthy. Like you don't know what could happen. And so that really did just like, I was pissed off at people again, going back to like that moment at 15. And just there's a lot of light in life that isn't fair. And so I'm not saying there's not a reason to be unhappy for anybody in that. But I just wanted to shake people like physically shape them to be like, is it really so bad? Or are you making things like worse than they need to be? Are you worried too much about things that don't matter? And also, even if life is really hard for you right now, like, you don't know, it could be over tomorrow. Like, could you do anything right now to kind of boost your mood to like have some joy, not like ignore what's happening. So that really got to me. And I ended up just stopping. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't do sound. I'm never doing sound again. I could have said, I'm having a really hard time. I'll rejoin the summer tour. Like, can I'll get somebody to fill in for me for the next month? I was like, I'm never doing sound. (laughs) I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I need to do something more with my life. (laughs) And I had no idea what it was. Prior to your dad dying, did you have any sort of spiritual foundation? Aside from going to a Catholic school as a young person, did you believe in destiny, fate, reincarnation? Like, How did you reconcile that happening that seemed rather spontaneous? And then he dies alone of hypothermia and discovered a day later. Yeah. And I wouldn't describe myself as Catholic. Like I said, even even in elementary school, I was like questioning that. But I do feel very spiritual. And even when I talk about getting into those quotes, like in early like college years and stuff too, that yeah, I was definitely always looking for information and feeling like I took my health in my own hands also from the fibromyalgia. They gave me a bunch of pills and stuff and we're just like, good luck. I'm sure these days they maybe do more for people. I don't know. But the pills messed me up more. So I got into like, okay, how can I eat to feel better? What can I do to support myself and feel better? And that also was noticing doing things that brought me joy, being with people that I didn't enjoy, with people who drained me and made me feel my pain more. Like, so I was really aware of my body and how I felt and realized when I was in certain situations with certain people, if I felt more enlivened or not. So, like, if you think about it too, like I have fibromyalgia and I was working like 18 hour days for a lot of that time, but it was because it was something that was fulfilling to me. I didn't really feel the pain. 
But, you know, like I realized when I would get jobs that weren't aligned, even in high school, I would really feel terrible. So I was always really present to how I felt. And so then mm-hmm. looking in food and stuff, I stumbled into a yoga class during that time when I was working at House of Blue Chicago and still going to college. And it was just for exercise, like, oh, look, okay, they're doing this. Let me see if I want to join this for exercise. And I was lucky that the first yoga class I ever took that was at a gym, I loved. And the teacher was like, incredible for what I needed. And from that first moment on, I was like, oh, this, this, like it just opened something different to me. I also, during that college time, it was a liberal arts school. So our like gen ed classes were different. And so I had taken like a philosophy of love class. And it was, it was more about like self love. And the teacher had us go through like the narcissistic aspects of our parents. Like it really had us evaluating these things that I would never like. I think I took philosophy of love to like find someone who would love me, like to be. And I was like, oh, it's about like learning about that. So, like, yeah, like, so. that really helped shape me. And honest, like to my dad, talking about my dad, we had to write papers for these class, right? And like go through the narcissistic aspects of my parents or trying to go through like why we thought they were the way they were and why they raised us the way we were. And that was when like the floppy drive, my dad took my old floppy drives because he needed them and he found all my papers (laughs) on them. And my parents did end up getting divorced when I was in college. Finally, and I'm the youngest. They waited until I was gone. Anyway, and he found these papers and then drove to Chicago for one day from Cincinnati because he was like, I just need to see you. I found this. And he like sat me down and opened up to me about like his entire life and some about like my mom and how she had grown up, but like really was telling me why. Because also, I wasn't hugged as a child or told I love you for a long time. And even saying this, that seems weird. But so I think that was part of it. So he like came up and found this stuff. And so he like saw it and really wanted to tell me about his life and why these things that had shaped him and had shaped my mom and had shaped their relationship and then how things that how they had raised us. Mm -hmm. So how that got to that to that is that I remember my dad coming up to have this conversation. I didn't remember, I didn't really like to be talked to my parents had the meltdown moment. (laughs) when I was 15. So that was a real breakthrough moment. So my dad and I, after that moment became very close from him opening up to me, but he came and I was like, this is amazing, dad. Thank you. I have to get to yoga. (laughs) Like I had just started taking this gym yoga class like a month ahead of time. And I was like, this is great, but I like have to make it to this yoga class because like, I I just like really like, (laughs) (laughs) but I had forgotten about that moment of him. I haven't really talked about that. So anyway, Yeah, I was like spiritual, but not like really yoga was something that I ended up really, really into during that summer when my dad passed away. I was like, well, I have no idea what I'm doing. I might as well get certified as a yoga teacher because I'm home now. That was also the first time I'd been in one one place for a length of time. And so, yeah, I was like always into sort of my own spirituality and like understanding things, but sort of like personal development-esque, but not...
when did you go nomadic? I know you went to India at some point. Where was that in the timeline? Was it after you quit your job? So when I started touring, I realized how funny it was to come home from a tour with like a suitcase overflowing of stuff and backpack of stuff. And I'd be gone for months at a time, be like packing up the tour bus and be like, oh, I have so much stuff. And then would, you know, fly home to a, a closet full of stuff and a house full of stuff. So after my like first tour, the next year went out on a tour again, I did get rid of almost everything. And I didn't have places to live for a lot of the time. So I would go out on tour and then it's like, okay, you have November off. I'm going to go to Costa Rica for November. Okay. Like, you know, oh, okay. Can I stay at your house? And like, you would just land at other people's places and sort of for a little while. So I lived a lot of life like that, but it was most of the year would be like on tour. And then for the chunks of months that I didn't have tours, I would just go wherever I wanted and do what I wanted. (laughs) Or like I said, be like, okay, let me stay at this person's place in LA for a couple of weeks and then come here and come back. So traveling was always part of it. And India came up later when I was like, I, again, I felt like I was living my dream life and then, but also felt like I wanted to run away from it. So I ended up, I got certified as a yoga teacher that summer after I quit the tour. I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew I wanted to wake people up and I was done with sound. And that is when I decided to give up the word should too. And it made no sense to me because I didn't think I lived a life of shoulds. Like I lived a life of my wants. I had done all of these things and I had made them happen. I was living my life. So I don't know where that idea came from, but I was like, okay, I'm done with the word should. And I committed to it so strongly that if it tried to come out of my mouth, I would stop. I would be like, what should... And I would be stuck because I was like, what other word do I use? I also was just like, I can't believe I use this word all the time. I, d- I don't understand. Like, I didn't know when I was giving up the word should how much I used it. And so I kept getting stuck on it. And I was like, if I really am going to do this, I need to find another word to replace it. And so I tried out different words and the word want is what felt like the best to me. And so then I was constantly coming back to what do I want? What prompted you to even think about that? To even think about giving up the word should? Like what happened just before? (laughs) Were you saying that to yourself? Were you journaling or something? And you were like, wait a minute, I use this word a lot. No. So that's what I can't figure out. So the like being on tour, I can't deal anymore. I need to get off this tour because I'm so emotional and a mess. And I just feel like I need to do more. I know I actually like, so I left the tour. I didn't know what I was going to do. And then I'd always want to, I went to Thailand like for a month actually there. And I was just like escaping. I do remember I bought a bunch of books before I went to Thailand. I went to a yoga retreat. I went to some cleanse. I did all sorts of like things, but I don't know. I'm like, I wonder if someone at that yoga retreat mentioned something to me about the word should or something, because I don't, it wasn't like, oh, I went, this person said it to me, or I read a book or something. It must've come from somewhere. And I don't know where I keep trying to figure it out. Like it wasn't this thing I can pin down. But I remember coming back to California after running away to Thailand and then be like, okay, so what am I doing now for the rest of my life? And so I just was like, I'm done with the word should. So I don't know. I really wish I could tell you (laughs) where it came from. It was likely, I mean... I don't know if it came from thin air or if it was just like casually mentioned by someone. It wasn't like a, this is it. It came from this, you know, thing that I did or saw. But yeah, I really stuck with it. And it showed me so much 
and I mean, that's what ends up my book that just came out is about is like, that was in 2008 that I gave the word up and I have stuck with it ever since. So I still come up against shoulds every day. I don't say the word, but I can feel the energy of it in my body. It can switch to it. But I realized how much the shoulds are so deeply embedded us that nobody, you know, again, people are like, oh yeah, yeah, I, I live a life that I want. But it really just got me so tuned in that I'm constantly in, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? What am I doing? And why from this one word? So also from that, I didn't know what I was going to do. From also asking myself, what do I want all year long and doing these different things and doing the yoga certification and stuff, I ended up creating a new role for myself going back on tour. And they called me a joyologist. So that was the world I knew was that I was touring with artists and I saw how unhealthy the environment is, how exhausting it is, how when these people who are the stars or in anybody in a business, the position of power, nobody questions them. And so if they're in a bad mood, then everybody's walking on tiptoe, you know, and also just seeing like, there's so much going on. And also nobody's really like taking care of these people in a real way. <laughs> like, you everything good? Good? You good? So anyway, it seems like you started working with these people as your clients, but that was the world I knew. So I knew what I wanted to do and create a role where I was taking care of the artists and other people on the tour, but primarily the artists, so that they were grounded and healthy in body and mind. And so I brought the Yoda certification out. I brought my love of like eating healing foods back on the road. I made other food for them. I would write affirmations on the mirrors and on the stage. So that when, because again, you think like these people are awesome, they still get flustered, they hit the wrong note or whatever, they see somebody and then get a doubt. So like every night down at the bottom of the stage where their monitors were, where they, <laughs> what they would use to hear what I used to control was now an affirmation from Trisha that was like, you're enough, or you got this, or, you know, like, whatever, different things. But I also then was sort of the person that was like, hey, what's going on? Like, you seem upset. So what's going on? Okay, what are you going to do about it? And like, all right. Or like, okay, you're really stressed out right now. Why? You don't love doing all of these interviews. Okay. Do you realize you can actually speak up and say like, maybe create a boundary with interviews. Like I can only do press from these hours or I only do this. Can you also see why those interviews are helpful for you and why they are a part? So like they're seeing that they're living their dream has now become a job. So how could they actually enjoy the life that they created? and be integrity with who they were and who they wanted to be. And Jason Mraz, who was one of the people I toured with later, called me his manager of integrity. <laughs> Did it pay the same as your engineering job, your sound engineering job? So when I start, because I am someone who I just want to do something to do it. So to start, no, I just sort of like had to get myself out there. But then it had ended up, yes. Eventually nice. I made... When I would end up, you know, it, it also, again, like first I just wanted to do it. And then a negotiating, you would negotiate weekly is how usually that work worked. Like what's your weekly rate? And so mm -hmm. negotiating that. And then eventually I was, you know, negotiating a contract with benefits and was sort of, and even was like, if you decide you no longer need me, then I still get a year's salary. That's amazing. I can't believe you did that. <laughs> because, did you know someone else who did that, who created no. a position? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that I never doubted myself or think, what are you doing? Nobody's going to say yes. I, again, like 
all that stuff comes out and that judgment and people being like, you're what? And people making fun of me, even being on these tours and then be like, yeah, Trish is the blah, blah, blah. And they roll their eye, you know, like, I still feel like a lot of those people like roll their eyes at me. And you were like I'm a like, punchline for a little bit of in the early days, right? Oh, yeah. And that's what I'm like. I still am wondering. I think some of those people are like, you wrote a book. You were just a smoothie girl. Like, that's how they were like, you know, like, because that's what, because I would like, oh, here, you want some smoothie manager label person while you're out? Like, I would be like offering these things. So, yeah, that's how some people saw me. And I had to, again, be like, no one can make me feel inferior without my consent. Like, yeah, a lot of people don't understand, but the person who is running this whole tour that's paying all of their salaries <laughs> enjoys me on tour and I'm making their life better. So it's like, it doesn't matter what all these other people think or saying out about me or what they think I do and don't do or whatever the thing is. So no, I made up a job. <laughs> you just need one person to say yes. <laughs> and that's something I always remind myself. You only need one person to say yes. It might take a while. But then again, when I was working, I working, that was even working more closely with someone. And even though it was something I loved to do, and it really lifted me up and my job was like keeping them healthy. So I was really living a healthy lifestyle and taking the best care of myself, but also again, it's exhausting and draining. So at the end of one tour cycle, I was like, okay, great. I did that. What's next? Like, I sort of was like, I don't know if I want to continue doing this forever. So I was ready for like a break. I don't need to go find another tour just to like keep touring. Like I was like, huh, okay, let me take some break. And I'd gotten into blogging at the time. So I was like, I think I'm, I'm going to write when this tour is over, I'm giving everything up and I'm going to go to India. And I seriously like gave almost everything away. You can get a since six month visa. So I got a six month visa by everyone. I'm going away to India for six months and who knows when I'll be back. Cause I'll just probably keep going. Did all that went away. Like, you know, like the a tour ended probably in, mid-December. And I think the first week of January was my flight. And the day, like the day before I was about to leave, a friend threw a party for me. And this guy was like, so what are you most excited for in India? And I was like, I'm so excited to not be around anyone I know. And it just came out of my mouth. And I was like, what? What? (laughs) And I said, I went to India, but I was like, that's such so interesting that I said that. And while I was there, I realized like I did want to be in India and I was happy to be there, but I really was just running away from my life. And I gave up everything, gave up all my belongings, went to the other side of the world so that I wouldn't have to say no to people and their invitations. Like I just knew that I needed my time and to recharge. And I wanted to be able to do things my way without anybody else's opinion or, hey, what are you doing, Trisha? Or, hey, do you want to do this? And I didn't know, like, I didn't see all that until after the fact, but it was just easier for me to flee my entire life than to be okay doing simply what I wanted to do. And sort of like that year when I was grieving my dad, I went through that, but that made sense. Like, she's grieving, so it's okay. Like, if she doesn't want to do anything and she's like isolated, like, she's like doing this thing, but it felt like I was no, like, oh, I wasn't going to be allowed to do that again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't going to just be allowed to do whatever I wanted and not care about other people and whatever and going to support them and doing things. So were you blogging about should at that time? And what's the anatomy of a should? Like, what are we really talking about when you say should? Literally no shoulds in your, in your, com- in your language, or is it only about specific kinds of situations? I mean, I know I've been talking about the should thing for a really long time. So I'm sure there were some blogs. My blogs were very much like, 
just like noticing things throughout my day. Like, oh, I was unhappy about this. And then I realized this, or I don't know, that was just like writing about my experiences and how I like had an aha that day about something. But I mean, I'm sure there were some really early ones about that. I mean, there are blogs from at least 10 years ago from me (laughs) writing about this. But yeah, so I so committed to not using the word and I still don't. Again, only if I'm like giving you an example of like, we should do this or, oh, I'm feeling and I should this. So even when I'm reading my kids' books to them, if it says should, I change it for a different word. It was such a powerful shift for me that blew my mind that I never wanted to lose it. Because it gave me such self-awareness that I have been concerned if I just start to like use it or it's no big deal if I say it this way, will it just slip back and then I will lose this awareness and mindfulness that I have that's related to it. So that is why I have been so firm in it. But the book isn't just like in the whole mission of it is like just F the shoulds and do whatever you want all the time. And so you don't have any responsibilities or obligations to people it's really for me, I'm getting clear on what I'm doing and why. So again, I face shoulds all day long, right? Like I got home from my kid's graduation. It's like, uh, I don't really feel like working, but I should work while the kids are out of town, like aren't in the house and it's still like a work day. So, okay. So it's like being aware of this should energy. I should work. Why do I feel I should work? Because the kids are out and it's a Friday and you work Monday through Friday And then looking at that, like, okay, is there something that actually has to get done? No. Like, I actually ended up, I was planning on getting to work after the graduation today and before our call, and I didn't. I relaxed. But I felt like I should work, and then I got confronted with that. No, I actually really feel like I'm tired. It's a Friday. If I want to catch up on work tomorrow, I actually don't have the kids tomorrow, so I could do that. But like, I'm actually good. You know what? I think I'm going to allow myself to rest. But of course, most days it's even like, okay, just drop the kids off. Okay. I should be getting to work. I'm not working yet. Right. So why do I want to answer the emails or why do I want to do that thing that's on my like, you know, list today? So looking at why I want to do the thing and then, oh, good. And sometimes it's just because it's something that needs to get done. (laughs) And if I keep putting it off, it's going to keep weighing on me. So for me, the big questions that help me move through like shoulds, because that's what I'll get people ask, like, well, what are the good shoulds or the shoulds you should do? And I'm like, well, no, I'm constantly reframing and seeing that everything is my choice. And so I'm looking at it. And so sometimes that is like, oh, I should really clean the house. Why do I want to clean the house? When the house is clean, I feel so much better. Things are put away. Or is it I should clean the house because I feel like a lazy, messy person and I'm not allowed, you know, so it's really looking at in what my priorities are. Sometimes I leave the house a mess because I would rather spend time with my kids and be present with them, or I would rather rest and I'll get to that later. And I don't have this shame or this is what I, you know, like whatever about it. So getting at what is the actual story here that I'm telling myself. And then it's like, yeah, I should clean my house because I feel better when it's clean. So why do I want to do it? And how will I feel? And then like motivate myself to be like, okay, turn on the timer for five minutes and let's like do that. You know, the whole process of writing the book every day. Okay, (laughs) you should be writing, (laughs) right? So it's like, I'm still confronted with them. Well, why do I want to do the writing? Because I'm really actually, you know, I have a deadline. It's due so that I, I actually like want to be there. But also... I really do want this book to come out into the world. I really believe in what I'm sharing. So it gets me to do the thing. I should really exercise. 
Why? Because when I exercise, I feel more present, alive, less stressed, less anxious. Oh, right. So I want to exercise. So it's sometimes just reframing it to look at why you even feel like that thing is weighing on you. And a lot of times it's inner judgments. Oh, I should be doing this. Oh, why do I want that? Is it just because that's what I've been taught to believe I should be doing? I should look like. So it just really has me constantly facing all of this stuff that we're so busy. It's going so fast that we don't look at and like, wait, this isn't even, do I really think that? Wait, I work for myself. I don't have to work Monday through Friday, nine to five. Do you feel like men and women treat that work the same way? I don't know. That's a good question. I have no idea. <laughs> I make up with no idea that probably more women suffer more shoulds. That's what I, I feel intuitively, but I think it still could apply to, you know, I think everybody does that. I should work out. I should work on my passion project. I should do this. I should do that. Okay. So let's say it's, it's mostly women that are affected by that word. Are there certain women that are more affected? Is it like a mental health thing or is it a societal pressure thing? Like what is the genesis of this shame around the word should? Well, I think it's definitely a societal pressure. Or the feeling tone of the show. I think it's definitely societal pressure and media. And I mean, I think that's even why it's more put at women's because there is more focus on what a woman should look like, what a woman Mm -hmm. should be doing with her life. We should be married by this age. We should have kids. Like you should be a stay-at-home mom. No, you shouldn't do this. Like there is so much. The world has decided way much more than what, like way much more, like really, like when I'm saying all that stuff, yeah, like why is there less pressure on, well, how come you don't have kids? How come you're not married yet? And I'm sure men do get that pressure, but it's so much different for women or what our bodies should look like. Like there's what we should be talking about, what we shouldn't, like there's so much more projected at women of us trying to fit into these boxes that were made up. So we don't even realize that again, as much as I was living a life of my once, still all of this inner conflict and inner judgment of myself based on what I'm taking in constantly, that I like I still, you know, as much as I've been using this non should that stuff as such as I've been living my life a certain way that it's still so deeply ingrained in me, like my body image stuff that like every mm-hmm. day I have to tell myself, Yes, you are allowed to wear that, Trisha, even if your arms are not as thin as that person's, even if you don't have this flat stomach, even if you're not this size, like it's so deep that every day I still have to walk myself through. And it it just happens so quick. Look in the mirror. (gasps) That's my arm. Oh, no. What does that mean about me? Like, it's just insane how deeply rooted it is. How can people stop shooting all over themselves <laughs> and unshoot themselves? Well, what are some of the, obviously reading your book would be one way to start, but like you say, it's deeper than that. Do they need to enroll in therapy? And so what kind of therapy or what are some of the other modalities for unshooting? I, of course, give the first tip of attempting what I did and to actually pay attention to that word when it's coming at you, but especially in your own language. And then you'll be able to look at it more in your own 
thoughts and like, where is this coming from? That's what gives me this constant awareness every day when I am like, wow, I'm still beating myself up about that. And then, but I have that moment of, I don't want to believe that and giving myself the choice of that. So I really recommend paying attention to the actual word of, yeah, I think for sure therapy. Another thing that's really helped me, like I said, I've been really aware of how I feel in my body. And I thought that that was sort of always a bonus of having fibromyalgia and that I chose life. So I was paying attention to how I felt around people and situations and stuff because I wanted to be able to have enough energy to live my life. So I've realized that not as many people are able to tune into their feelings. And what I was able, like a lot of the uncovering of the stuff that goes into these books about not enoughness and doubts and shame and all setting boundaries, even that I was able to tune more into that from paying attention to how I feel. So the shoulds help with that. But one thing that I have always given clients and stuff is to start just even a practice, like maybe it's, you know, even put it in your alarm or like every day, like when you go to the bathroom, it's like, you know, find a way to make it be part of your thing to just check in with what am I feeling? What am I feeling? Because for me, that's how I am able to notice a should that I haven't actually said or heard. I can just notice like, huh, there's an energy in my body. Like I feel anxious. I feel worried. I feel concerned. Like I can just tell when I'm not fully present or like I'm not like as easily accessible to joy and stuff. Like I feel this heaviness. And so just being able to notice like, oh, there's a heaviness here. So, and then I will be able to ask questions like, oh, what's going on here? And I can track it back to, oh, I sent so-and-so a text message and they didn't reply. So I made up that they don't care about me or something. So I can look at, I can notice my heaviness of feelings and then look at, oh, I'm anxious about this. Oh, I'm upset about this. For people that aren't able to do that, to just like set times of day that you check in with, what am I feeling? And then naming what you're feeling has been such a powerful thing for me. I'm able to easily track it back most of the times, but you don't even have to know why am I feeling this, but just even looking at, oh, what am I feeling? Feeling anxious. I'm feeling worried. I'm feeling concerned. Because a lot of what my book is, is uncovering our thoughts and feelings so that we can move through them. We're usually just so busy in our life that we're go, 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 or I don't want to face that. Okay. I'm worried or I'm scared or I'm nervous or this, but let me just keep going. And another thing that really helped me to name my feelings was journaling. And I bring that up in the book, like the morning pages style of journaling. I don't follow it like actually like, oh, you have to do it first thing in the morning, like Julia Cameron says, but that freestyle of writing, the just brain dump where it's just, you just keep writing. There's no new paragraphs. It doesn't have to be pretty. You're just like, oh, I don't know what's going on today. I'm really worried about so-and-so I'm this. When I first started doing that, I would get stopped when the worry or a fear or a doubt, anything that I used to want to label negative. I now don't label, try to label those feelings as negative, but the uncomfortable feelings, I was like, I can't write this down. If I write this down, that means it's real. Like, you know, it was again, this like, no, I can only be positive or let me write the things. Like it was easy for me to share dreams and wants or just like, oh, I forgot I have to do this today or that. Like the just not exciting, like blah, blah, blah that would come out. But when the real stuff would come out, I would try to hide from it. I can't write this down because that'll make it real. But what I realized was it's already real. And by me facing it, by giving it attention, that doesn't make it like give it more power. It actually takes the power away. 
So that's what, again, like all the shoulds and looking at your feelings and the journaling is to uncover what it is that you're telling yourself, what it is that you're feeling. We try to just push it down and keep going. But where I find true freedom, alignment, connection to myself and my life is by facing that stuff. And then seeing, I don't have to see if this is the truth. I can question it. I can ask myself, what do I want to believe? Or also just even nurturing myself while I'm in them. So naming your thoughts, the ones you don't want to have also, naming the worries, the fears, the shame, the guilt, the blame, all of that is actually for me, the most healing thing that has given me the power to continue to show up for my life and do what I want to do. I would love to, I don't know if this is something you do or you encourage doing, but for my man brain, it feels a bit abstract and I would love to make it a little more practical. And I was wondering if you'd be open to like workshopping. I was, I have some should statements and I would love okay. to say them just to hear how you would reframe them to give the result, the desired result that you, that you're talking about. Is that cool? Yeah. I'd love so that. we can, so the, so listener, we can talk through like how you think about it. Okay. I shouldn't eat this slice of cake. So I'm thinking to myself, I shouldn't eat this slice of cake. What, how should I be reframing that? So, yeah, I feel like I shouldn't eat this slice of cake. Then it would be first a question like, well, why do I think I shouldn't eat this cake? Because it's going to cause me to have waste handles. So if you're telling yourself I shouldn't, then it's likely because you actually want to, but you're telling like, I, I right. shouldn't. I want it. So for me, it's looking at again, like, okay, well, why do I not want to eat this? Okay, because that's going to be, yeah, it's going to give me these waste handles. So that could be, okay, then that is your answer. I also am like, for some, it's not like all the time, but when you do really want something and you're trying to like convince yourself not to, but a lot of times too, if you went through that, like, I shouldn't have this, but I want it anyway then sometimes I feel like we eat it and you're just like, I'll show you self. And then afterwards feel like this like guilt, right? And regret. But when you're confronting yourself, like, yeah, I know I shouldn't eat this. I don't think I should eat this because it's going to give me these whatever waste handles. <laughs> but I really do want this. Like looking at, do I want this? Do Am I making that choice? So again, seeing that you are making that choice that I do want to eat this cake and I know that it might give me these waste handles. And so that's the choice. And that might even look at, okay, so maybe I just eat half the cake. But like, if you are actually choosing the cake, then allow yourself to have it and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. Where I think the, the more is that if you're constantly leaving, I shouldn't do these things, but you actually want them. Like, what is the bigger priority to you? If you really are this is the highest priority above all in my life is what my body looks like and not my own joy, then that's your choice. Can it be both in allowing? So again, it's just looking deeper at that. I don't care if you eat that cake or not. <laughs> it's your energy towards you doing it. Like if you're like, I shouldn't eat this, but I want it. Again, that could still have you feeling like the guilt and regret that I think can make more toxic feelings than just the cake itself. But when you're like, yeah, I want this cake. It's okay for me to choose this cake. 
I want this cake today. And that doesn't mean you're going to choose it every day. And so sure, I don't know what's going to happen to your love handles, their love side, <laughs> side body. But for me personally, I have noticed like I used to be like, people say you can eat what you whatever you want in this. And of course, my body has gone in fluctuations. But when I used to be so I shouldn't have this or this is bad, I would do this. And when I would allow myself those little indulgences, I feel like I hung on to weight more than when I was just like, yeah, I mostly eat healthy and these things and I want to enjoy this and I'm allowed that. So it was like an interesting thing that I think that our energy around the food can have us holding on to more of the weight. Beautiful. I've just got a few more. After we go through a few, it's going to kind of all come together so we can apply it to any situation. Okay. So this is a real situation I was talking to with a friend of mine who was in this situation. He said something to the effect of, I should go to my aunt's funeral, but the plane tickets are expensive. So looking at that, and I love like I do talk about the book too, they sort of like things that feel like they're obligations, but like you also kind of want to. So I should go to my grandmother's funeral. So looking at again, why do you feel that you want to go to your grandmother's funeral? Is it just... Well, that's what you do when someone dies. The whole family is going to be there. I really want to show my support, but I can't really afford the ticket, but I could, but it's going to set me back a little bit. That's a very realistic one because it's not just even making the choice of going, but the money Mm -hmm. is. So yeah, but you're first getting clear that I do, it sounds like I do want to go. That person does want to go. It's not just a should. So it really then is, I want to go. So it also then switches the energy from I should go to my grandmother's funeral, but I can't mm-hmm. afford the ticket to you did see why you want to go. So it's not a should it's I want to go to my grandmother's funeral, but the price is more expensive. And just did you notice an energy shift from the I should go to I want to go then you more like, no, I really want this. So mm-hmm. then it has you looking at it differently. And when that when I feel like I've gotten to my choice on what I want, it helps me get clearer. So the money thing is still an issue, but because you've seen it's a want and not a should, you can get more proactive in, could I ask my family to chip in? Do I have any miles? Can I, do I know any mm-hmm. miles that I could ask? Is there anything I can do? When you have gotten yourself to the want choice, you can allow yourself to see more possibilities and get more creative about like, yeah, that ticket is still expensive. It didn't change the cost, but you're now clear mm-hmm. on, I want to go because I want to be there with my family. I want to mm-hmm. be there for this time. So for me, when I'm able to shift to that, it makes me then get like, so what, okay, I want this. What can I do about it? And it's not just one choice of buying the $900 ticket or whatever. Right. So you stop putting all your energy on the shame around possibly not being able to do it. Instead, you you funnel it into creative solutions to make it happen. Okay. And even just when you're talking to the people that are related to it too, like then you are saying, I want to go. I just can't afford the ticket, you know, like, and so there could be then you actually can't afford the ticket and it doesn't happen, but you've gotten, I wanted to go because I wanted to be there with my family. And that can't happen because it also be like, oh, I want to go, but I'm across the world on a, you know, I can't actually get there, but you've gotten clear. You want to be there. So then why did I want to be there with my family? So what else can I do? You know what? I'm going to make sure I'm going to like send this note to be read aloud or something. So you can also yeah. get more creative on what was the attention, the reason you wanted to be there. And if you can't mm-hmm. do that actual one thing, what's another way you can express the reason you wanted you to be there? You could shoot a video. You could hire somebody to go and zoom it. You can do all kinds of stuff that you probably wouldn't think about if you were focusing on the shame around it. Yeah. And like, you know that you tried. It was a want. I still want my intention of I'm there with my family mm-hmm. to be there. And but just might look a different way. How about this one? 
I should take the dog out for a walk, but I should also finish this email. That's looking at <laughs> priorities. So even I want to take the dog out for the walk, the dog needs to go out and take a walk. And I want to finish this email. So what is the you know like bigger priority? If the email is going to take <laughs> 30 minutes, is it just, yeah, okay. Then finish the email. Because also it could be you're just dilly-dallying on the email. Like I should do this and I should, oh gosh, I'm not finishing this email because I should do that. If you just go, these, this is a reality. I have an email. I have a dog to walk. Finish the email. <laughs> I want to finish this email so I can go walk my dog. Or mm. wait, no, the bigger priority is like my dog's about to have an accident. They haven't been outside for eight hours. I want to go walk my dog and I'm going to use that time on the walk to get clear on what I'm trying to say in this email. All right. Last one. I should sign up for a dating app, but I hate dating apps. Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because I recently signed up for a dating app and I forget to go on the dating app. I'm like, oh, right. Why am I on this thing? <laughs> so I should sign up for a dating app. So again, that could just be like, why do you want to sign up for a dating app? I want to be in a relationship. I want to have a family. I want to have kids, whatever. Got it. So that's an answer. You've gotten your answer. I want to be in a relationship. And so then again, you can see in the choice, then well, why not try this thing? And I'm going to show mm -hmm. up again with not that energy of a, huh, this is what I have to do. Because this is, I guess, mm -hmm. what you do these days that if you're date, you should be on a dating app. Mm -hmm. so you get to choose. It, I see every should as a choice. I should be on right. this dating app because that's how you know I should be dating. Then, all right, that's the reality of the world. So, all right, I want to be on this dating app because I want to try. I want to see if it could work for me. It makes right. me put it more in my control and again, make it like more fun instead of like ugh, so resentful that this is the only way that you can do this. Then that's yeah. also your choice. If you don't want to get on the dating app, but that's the idea then what else can I do? All right. Every Saturday afternoon, I'm going to go out to a place the I want to be. And I'm yeah. going to force myself to say hi to at least two people. I get it. Now it all makes sense. <laughs> so you're basically saying that should exposes your pessimism, your natural pessimism. Want helps you to channel your optimism, your natural optimism. So stay more optimistic than pessimistic, and you'll end up attracting the experiences that you ultimately want to have. And not attracting like sitting on your hands and just waiting for it to happen, but inspiring yourself to take the, the desired action that is in alignment with those experiences that you want to attract into your life. Yeah. And that's what I say in the book. It's like, it's not like living your dream life. It's like you're living an aligned and alive life. Because you are constantly aware of what you're doing and why. And I'm not, oh, date. this is the only one I can, way I can date. So I should be on this app. And you're resentful while you're on the app. So like, big surprise if you don't meet anybody when that's, I'm so don't like this energy, is the way yeah. I should be. And then you're mm -hmm. seeing, because me too. I'm like, all right, why did I get on the app? Right, I should be messaging people on the app because that was the idea, <laughs> Trisha, of why you joined the app. And I'll be like, maybe I'll just delete that. Okay, delete that. But wait, why did you join? Right. Because you thought, hey, wouldn't it be nice to go out and have fun with people? So right. Why do I want to be on it? So when I show up, it's right. This is fun energy. Like, why not? I could try it out like that. So it's really, again, it's making like why I'm saying I focus on that word. It's not like I even say it's like my kids will tell me like should is a bad word in our house. <laughs> but it's not like really it's more that I use the word should as like a yield sign. 
hey, mm-hmm. what's going on here? What are you doing? What is your choice? And again, it might be to be reframing and you change the same choice or it's like, yeah, I don't want that. You don't, nobody's forcing you to join the dating app, but if you do want to date, then make a different choice. So if I'm not going to put my energy into the dating app, then what am I going to do? Then I and you, make this other commitment to myself. You obviously don't recommend people become the should police. So I'm sure you've had that experience, right? <laughs> How do you inspire your partner, your kids not to excessively use the word should? Yeah, no. And I definitely have my moments of, again, this has been a long time I've been on this path. <laughs> so I've had my yeah. moments of- You've annoyed all police. of your friends. They're- <laughs> None of nobody's surprised you wrote this book, right? <laughs> but they won't read it. They're just like, just don't say the word around Trisha so that she doesn't correct you. Oh, like, right. No, Somebody <laughs> says the word at, at Thanksgiving and everyone looks to see <laughs> what you're going to say. <laughs> and so I go through phases of not like, obviously now with the book out more, but no. So I oftentimes, especially if people say it, what will happen is if somebody I notice, will, like I'm so present to it and so present to it and people don't even know they said it. So I'll be in a conversation if somebody keeps using the word, especially if it's about something I can tell that they're sort of like struggling with, like we're just talking here. But I will sometimes be like, hey, did you did you notice how many times you said the word should? And be like, no, what do you mean? So I sometimes, like I said, if I can see that it's showing up in somebody's language in a way where it is like, I don't know what I should do about this. And I should do this. But so-and-so says I should do this. Like if they're actually like really trying to get to something, then I would be like, well, what if you tried it? Like, look at it this way. You've been noticing this. But yeah, in general conversation with like, hey, we should go to dinner tomorrow. Like that people are saying to me all the time. I'm not to everybody. No, we will go to dinner because we want to. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's also, and I do in the book, I was like, if people really commit to this, like I do, it's not always a one switch. There's different things. And so there even is a chapter of different ways to get around it when you are talking to people, because it's like, I'm saying like, it's not fun to should on yourself, but it's also not fun for someone to should at you. So to be like, this is the way it is. This is what you should be. No, you shouldn't say should even, but like to look at your language when you're talking it to other people. But it's also a lot of the book too, is having self-compassion for yourself. And like, this stuff is not your fault. The fact that you're shooting on yourself, the doubts, the fears, the shame, the guilt, this is all part of us as humans experience. So to allow yourself to look at it with more love and compassion and not, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm still struggling with this. Or I can't believe I just had that judgment. So I, I think we end up piling these heavy emotions on top of heavy emotions already. And we don't end up healing it because we're making ourselves wrong for even feeling the way we do. And so seeing that doesn't feel good for ourselves and that doesn't feel good for other people to also receive from you. So yes, you love them. You might know better than them. And also it's not going to come across and like, you should be doing this or you shouldn't be using the word should. So F the shoulds, do the wants came out in May and this is your first book, right? Yes. So I think you and I have the same agent. Correct. Yes. So talk about that process. Like, okay, because I want to, I want to just kind of wrap up with this. But you know, there's somebody else out there listening to this and goes, "I've been thinking the same thing about would or could or whatever word they've been thinking of, and maybe they've been blogging about it." How do you go from just okay, I have this this obsession with not using the word "should" to I have a book called "F the Shoulds Do the Wants." Like, how does that work? 
Yeah, good did you put together your treatment and send it out to a bunch of agents, or how did that? How did you land that? From like I said, when I started blogging, almost like over ten years ago, now I I was just like journaling for myself, and I loved mm-hmm. it, and I was just sort of like, wow, this feels so great to like write my experiences out, and I didn't expect it to go anywhere, but people did really resonate with, and it was like me telling my story, and then and look at how you could do this sort of thing, and that always felt really good, and. I've never had like huge social media following, but like back on Twitter, like I, I had that experience of people resonating with my words. And so that really made me want to continue to share them. And so I, for like over 10 years was saying I was going to write a book. Like when I was going to India, I was like, I'll go there and I'll write my book and that. So I kept telling myself I was going to write a book, but I really was waiting for someone to choose me. (laughs) I was waiting for an agent, for a publisher to be like, here is your book deal. We can tell you have things to say. And that's it happened. I think that does happen to people. That does happen. It did not happen to me. (laughs) And so I finally was just like, I kept, you know, like, I know that I have so much to say and share inside of me. And a lot of these things are things that I've said over and over and over again in videos, in podcasts, in client calls, in coaching groups, and everything. And so it kind of was getting annoying to repeat the things over and over one. It was just like, no. Anyway, I was like, all right, this is time. You need to sit down and write the book. And I honestly wasn't going to write about this because I've been talking about it for so long, but it it has always felt like it seems too small and insignificant that you just focus on one word that, oh, yeah, yeah, no shoulds. Yeah. Yeah. F the shoulds. Don't shut all over yourself. And that they would still use the word like consistently over and over again. And even people bigger than me, you know, with bigger platforms would be like promoting this don't shoot all over yourself and, you know, getting all this attention. And then the next post would be like, we should do this. And I was like, but they don't get it. You're constantly shooting on yourself and other people by using the word. And so again, like just getting annoyed, but I was going to write about something else. Well, one of the chapters in the book, which is really like this way that we're constantly judging ourselves and that the fear of judgment is really us judging ourselves. And it just so happened that somebody I was about to interview for my podcast, we were having a conversation and she kept using the word should. And it was somebody I did like sort of know. So I was just like, I did have a moment of like, hey, I don't know if you've noticed, but like you use the word should constantly. And like, I think that'll be my second book. Like I said, like, you know, I do this thing where I don't use the word, I change it. And me just telling her about it in a couple minutes, my idea, she was like, you need to write that book. What? That's life-changing. And it was like, yeah, why am I not writing this book that I've been talking about for years? And so then I just had to sit my butt down <laughs> and commit to it. So it finally just took to like, yeah, this is the thing. I can't wait for someone to choose me. And then, but making that time of putting a lot on pause without knowing what would come from it. And like, okay, but I'm committed to, I really want this to be out in the world. Like even just having one person remind me of, yes, wow, I want to know more about that. Convinced me to sit down and to keep going and going and going. Because yeah, I was lucky I was introduced to our Colleen, our mutual agent by someone early on. And Actually, a year before that, I had talked to her and she was sort of like, well, do you have an idea? And I was like, no. She's like, we'll get back to you when you have an idea. Like, and I was like, no, don't you have ideas for me? Like, look at my stuff. Tell me what to write. Like, I wanted even her. And I was just like, I was pissed off when I finished that first conversation with her. And then like a year later, someone else introduced me to her again. 
And I was like, here's my idea. Here's my proposal. And it was a very terribly written proposal. But she was like, your proposal needs a lot of work. But I see something here. I do think you're onto something. So then it took a lot of time of rewriting it and getting really clear. And the first sample chapters were straight memoir, which I think I needed to write to be able to like heal myself more. But yeah, a lot of work and just this commitment and also just, yeah, like I have to sit my butt down. No one is going to like clear my schedule for me and tell me, here you go. It's your time to write the book. We've got your mission statement here for you. It's so funny. That was exactly my experience as well with my first book. And I don't think people appreciate that. You you have to actually do the work. Like you have to commit to it. There's no one's going to give you permission to do whatever your dream or your passion project is. You're never going to get permission to do it. You're just going to have to give yourself permission and you're just going to have to do it. So you're going to have to want it. Keep showing up. Yeah. You got to keep keep showing showing up up when you don't know what's going to come from it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So what's my should score? Did I use it at all during this interview? I didn't catch it. (laughs) <laughs> I don't remember using it. But, I don't. You know, I, only, I didn't. You're the one it. that's like. Yeah, no, uh, that's, that's interesting that you asked me because no, I normally will really catch it, and I have had people that are interviewing me for the book and even telling me, "Oh my gosh, yeah, I was reading the book and I was noticing." <laughs> no, I this, love and they're it. like, right. they're telling me ahas and that they're still constantly using it, and I didn't. Sometimes it depends. Like sometimes I point it out, and sometimes I don't. But I don't think you did because I don't remember. I will get the sort of like I'm so present to it that my body's sort of like, oh, what. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. I'm I'm so happy that we got a chance to have this conversation after having our previous conversation where you were interviewing me. And I love the idea of being mindful in your communication and watching how you use that word, but more than that, just noticing the energy that you feel around using that word and then mindfully choosing a different way to express yourself in order to have the type of energy that you ultimately want to have. And you want to, you know, we all want to lead by example, especially if you have kids and things like that. You want to make sure that they're not picking up your your habits of pessimism and you and that they're able to become more optimistic just because that's the energy that you're putting out there. So thank you very much for for doing this work and for carrying this load so long since 2008. Oh my God, that's crazy. That's insane. It's like that's like what fourteen years you've been you've been on the should <laughs> on the should. There campaign. are some very like I'm saying like I remember when the do you remember the Daily Love? Yeah, of course. Blog I Matt, think like with Kip, Mast, uh, Mastin, Kip, Matt yeah. Mastin Kip. I was I was a writer for that. I'm I'm sure I wrote about the shoulds back there, and and that mm-hmm. was yeah like at least like twelve years. <laughs> awesome, 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 awesome. And obviously the book is now available, so. You can get it everywhere books are sold. And you also have, you have a pretty resource rich presence online. And so is there anything else that you want people to explore as an entry point to your work outside of the book? Oh, good question. And thank you for the conversation. I think you got some things I don't haven't really talked about out in our conversation too, which you mentioned for my conversation with you. Mm -hmm. So that's Mm -hmm. fun. And yeah, like I said, I just want to say one last time, like it is, I'm paying so much attention to the word should, but like once you really pay attention, it's more like, it's not about the word. It's, it's about you and what Mm -hmm. you're doing and what you're like seeing that things are your choice. You're not going Mm -hmm. through your life feeling like resentful and guilty or shame and all stuff that you're really clear on what you're doing, what you're feeling and why. So for more about me, yes, definitely get the book. F the shoulds do the once. I have a daily inspiration app 
which I sometimes forget to talk about. It's called Own Your Awesome that has hundreds of mantras and affirmations that you can come to. I do have a product line and one of my favorite items is this daily connection journal that has, again, these daily prompts. I have the pot. My podcast is called Claim It. And yeah, I'm out there sharing on all the things in social media and TikTok and doing my thing. You can either find me at underscore Trisha Huffman and my brand is still Your Joyologist. From I for years I didn't even use my name. I just went as your joyologist from being given that name on tour all those years ago. <laughs> you still get requests to come on tour with whoever artists to be the joyologist of the tour and that kind of thing. Is that a thing? Are people like are there other people who are now joyologists who followed your lead? I don't think like anyone has totally taken the role <laughs> I did, but yeah, there's much more these days on tours of different, you know, like it's, I think it's a lot more common now to like, I did back then, I'd be like, oh, what your personal trainer's on tour, that person has their nutritionist. And that's why it was like, you know, like those were more like actual roles, but that also just seeing that allowed me to, you know, create that role. So I do think there's a lot more different support. No one really took that. So that is also the part of my work too, that I feel good about that. Like, Jason Mraz, one of those, one of my main clients, and I still like work with him, but I don't tour with him because again, he mostly from having me at his side for years has now been able to internalize it. So it's like the Mm. manager of integrity is now able to more live in his brain than Mm. outside of it with me. And so like, you know, still having that. So, and that's what I wanted is like, I want people to do the work on their own and stuff. So I do still work with people in the public eye and artists and stuff. But as a mama, it's more like, oh, wait, I can work with people like FaceTime and text and Zoom (laughs) and not be with them 24... I mean, being with people 24-7 obviously makes it much more effective because they can't get away with anything. They couldn't escape me. (laughs) They couldn't escape me. So I would make them confront them with their own shit. So I still work with people, but in a much more, um, yeah, I've created my own. Again, you have to keep recreating what works for yourself and in that work-wise as well. Now that you have this book out, right, this is sort of like your personal manifesto around this word should. What now? Like, what, what's the next thing you're going to lock in on? I still feel like, you know, that pool from years ago where I just knew like when I felt like, oh, I'm a writer. Okay. So I do know for <laughs> sure I plan on writing more books and putting out, you know, like I said, I'd already created products. So I'm excited to create more. Like I have my own affirmation deck that I self publish, but like creating more products and different styles of books that, you know, like even like you did the 108, like just using all of this stuff that I'm like, I have so much to say and putting it out in different formats. So I do plan on putting more out. And yeah, I want to get more into like public speaking. But yeah, I'm excited to keep on. This is not like, I did my book. I'm done. I really (laughs) felt like, all right, I love this. (laughs) I have more to say, more to come. I loved that process as challenging as it was. (laughs) I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And I look forward to hopefully meeting you at some point soon. And until then, thank you for, for showing up and for living your purpose and your passion and taking the leaps of faith and believing in yourself and all the other good things that needed to happen in order for us to be having this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Trisha Huffman. I recommend following Trisha on social media. Her handle is underscore Trisha Huffman. That's T-R-I-C-I-A 
H-U-F-F-M-A-N. Her new book, F the Shoulds, is available everywhere books are sold. And of course, we'll put links to all of it in our show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, we've got an incredible archives of interviews with luminaries like Ed Milet, film director Ava DuVernay, spoken word artist Saul Williams, author Stephen Pressfield, chef Marcus Samuelson, and many others who share how they found their path and their purpose. You can also search interviews by subject matter at lightwatkins.com slash show. You'll see a drop down menu at the top of the page where you can search by specific subjects like people who've taken leaps of faith or people who've overcome financial struggles or people who've navigated health challenges. And you can also watch these interviews on my YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Light Watkins Podcast and you can put a face to a story. And if you are the type of person who loves the raw, unedited version of podcasts with all the chit chat and the mistakes and the false starts, you can find that by joining my online community called thehappinessinsiders.com where you're not only going to have access to those unedited versions of the podcasts that are going to be released a day early, but you'll also get access to my 108-day meditation challenge, and there are a bunch of other 108-day challenges and masterclasses that are all geared around doing inner work and becoming your most authentic self. One way to support this show is to leave a rating or a review for the podcast, which you can do really quickly by glancing at your device, and if you have the Apple Podcast podcast app open. Click on the name of this podcast, which is The Light Watkins Show, and then it'll show you some past episodes. Scroll down past the first seven or eight past episodes. You'll see a section with five blank stars. If you really enjoyed the conversation, if you got some inspiration from it, please click the star all the way on the right, the fifth star, and that will give us a five-star review. And other than that, thank you very much for tuning in for another conversation. Hopefully we'll see you back here next week for the next story about someone just like me and you who've taken a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you so much and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.